This is an ABC podcast. No, ia e Māori fa'atalofatu and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Dubon. Faixia, thank you for tuning in to the show this morning. On today's lineup, Vanuatu Prime Minister survives a motion of no confidence. Though it was a loss in the semi-finals, but what a campaign by the Matildas. In Samoa, we'll be seeing more women drivers on the roads. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. In your search engine, just type ABC Pacific Beat. Feel free to share these stories all across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau has survived a motion of no confidence after an attempt to oust him from power yesterday afternoon. Opposition leader Bob Lofman moved the motion, citing concerns for the country's independence after Vanuatu signed a bilateral security agreement with Australia in December. The Prime Minister's move is a great, great tendency to shifting the country away from being a neutral, peaceful state to exposing and aligning our nation to unnecessary competition, thus compromising our opportunities for greater development of infrastructure and economic sectors. Vanuatu, as an independent and sovereign nation, cannot allow this form of engagement in international relations to continue. The Honorable Prime Minister and his government must conduct its relations impartially and not allow our independent and sovereignty and sovereign nation to be sucked into a game he does not want and, and, and to be used inappropriately by competing nations to exert dominance in our region. The, Honorable Prime Minister Mangoro, without the authorization from the Council of Ministers, did proceed to execute the security pact with a development partner. Our relations and standing with our development partners are done on equal footing since immemorial and must be maintained. Honorable Prime Minister, and the government that he leads has failed and is reckless to appreciate the effects of thousands of Nivanuatu living our source for labor scheme overseas. Vanuatu is experiencing a drain of its labor force in all sectors of its economy, not just unskilled, but also trained and experienced skilled workers. This is affecting all sectors negatively. And joining us this morning is journalist Priyanka Srinivasan, who was in the parliament watching the dramatic scenes unfold. Uh, With that, I say welcome to the show. Thank you, Aggie. (laughs) Nice to be here. Yeah, good to catch up with you, Priyanka. Firstly, how did Ishmael Kalsakal manage to actually survive this motion? I suppose when initially the odds looked pretty stacked against him. 
Yes, well, some would say the odds still look pretty stacked against him, uh, Aggie, because he barely scraped through and, and pretty much made it through with a, a technicality on his side. Um, now, you know, that, that'll be made clear when you actually look at the numbers. So the numbers for the motion, that's the motion to oust the Prime Minister yesterday, was 26, where, whereas the numbers against ousting the Prime Minister and keeping the government attacked, uh, intact was uh, 20. Three. So on a simple majority, it would seem like the Prime Minister should have um, been ousted and stepped down. But Vanuatu has a 52-seat uh, parliament. That means you need 27 to have an absolute majority, and that's what was needed for this motion to go through. Um, and the opposition said, unfortunately, one of their members was absent on sick leave uh, and was seeking medical treatment overseas. They tried to get um, this... this uh, um, uh, MP to phone in to be able to give his vote virtually. That was not allowed. And so they ended up with 26, uh, just one short of the absolute majority, which meant that that motion failed. And uh, the Prime Minister, Kal uh lives for another day as Prime Minister. Mm, how convenient. I wonder, <laughs> I believe, a reshuffling of his cabinet, though, he had done ahead of the vote. Would this have helped him survive? Well, yes, there was lots of movement around. There were um, people being stepped down, uh, new deputy PM was put in place, new foreign ministers, lots of shuffling. Um, Yes, what what we can only imagine was to try and keep the government on board, keep the members on board. Um, It seems like it wasn't enough because there is still, um, you know, at least seems to be a majority, the majority on the opposition side uh, rather than the government side. Government now has that question of how can it actually rule the country, rule government with having uh, a minority. They, they don't have the majority numbers either. Um, so, yes, there was a lot of moves made, a lot of attempts, and I'm sure the government is still making attempts to try and win um, people back onto their side. Um, but as the numbers stand at the moment, the opposition do have more members supporting its mm. agenda. Uh, when the motion was defeated, though, things became quite controversial. Can you maybe tell us what the opposition was actually unhappy about? Yes, yes, Aggie. Well, they were unhappy about this very thing that we've been talking about, how a government that has the minority of support from its members and how an opposition that has, when you just look at the numbers, the majority support, they want to get rid of the current prime minister, why that isn't allowed. And um, they they questioned, you know, the the um, when it was read out, it was, it was said, you know, the motion is defeated with 23 votes against and 26 votes for, which begs the question, how can it be defeated when you have more on the on on the yes side? Um, so that that mere statement sort of resulted in, in the opposition slamming their hands on the on their on their tables, getting up out of their seats, yelling across. There were calls for the prime minister to resign. That they they were saying that this is a responsible thing to do if he doesn't have the support of the majority of members of parliament. That he should just get up and leave and resign um, on his own. Um, rather than looking at this technicality of 27 versus 26. Um, so there was a lot of fury from the opposition. I mean, you could hear it straight away. Um, the speaker sort of had to ha- calm the waters and tell, um, tell the parliament that he had sought um, advice from lawyers, from the attorney general, from private practice that said that they had to follow the rule um, to the T, which says you need an absolute majority, which is 27. And... 
if the opposition did want to test it and he encouraged the opposition to test it, that they should go to the courts and ask a judge to decide who, what to make of the situation. And so we expect that's, that's exactly what the opposition um, will do. Yeah, listening in on that live stream, you could hear shouting and things sounded quite heated. Uh, as we heard, though, one of the concerns cited by opposition leader Bob Lofman uh, when he moved this motion of no confidence, it was around foreign policy. What was he for referring to there? Yes, that's right. Well, I, I, before we get into that, Aggie, I do want to make clear the motion uh, uh, went through so many different things. I mean, the foreign engagement was one element. And in fact, there were a lot of domestic concerns as well to do with wage hikes, um, the support for private uh, private industry and other things. But yes, I guess uh, as international listeners uh, might be most interested in the, in the statements around foreign engagement. And particularly, there was sort of, though it wasn't explicitly made, the, the statement seem to refer to Australia's recent um, security pact that was signed between Australia and Vanuatu last year. Um, they talked about a security pact between a develop- development partner, but Vanuatu has only signed one uh, security pact recently, which is the one with Australia. So as, as we heard at the top of the show, um, uh, the opposition leader, Bob Lofman, um, stated that this security pact didn't go through the um, cabinet of ministers. It was signed, um, the, the opposition claimed sort of unilaterally by the Prime Minister Kalsaka with um, Australia and, and therefore that sort of undermined the neutrality of Australia, um, of Vanuatu, sorry, with uh, other countries, uh, that it undermined independence, it undermined um, the sovereignty of the country and that really this, this um, agreement should have gone through the process. Now the Prime Minister has, has said, I, I spoke to him after the um, debate yesterday and, and he said that it is going through the proper processes, that it will be reviewed by the Security Council and then go to the Parliament for for the final signature. Um, So he's accused the opposition of of sort of making um, false claims, of not actually um, supporting what they say with with evidence. Um, But as you know, Aggie, there is a lot of concern around um, foreign interests in the Pacific and and Vanuatu is, is just the same. There is a lot of concern about how that might pull Vanuatu um, to support one side or another, um, particularly when it comes to sort of China and its allies versus, um, you know, Australia, the U.S. and its allies. Uh, Vanuatu says that it wants to remain, remain neutral. Um, but Lofman has himself, when he was in power, was criticized for signing deals with China. Um, the, now we're seeing this government be criticised for signing deals with Australia. Um, I expect this, this issue will continue to rear its head in, in Vanuatu foreign policy. Well, that's it. With Kalsakar remaining in power, then is this deal fit for purpose, the one that they signed with Australia? Well, yes. Is, is the, is the, is the um, security deal fit for purpose? Is that what you were asking? Yes, yes. Yes, well, we will see. That's that's a um, interesting question. I mean, the 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 opposition haven't outrightly said, and in fact, I spoke to um, Mr. Luffman to see if he if he would consider tearing up the deal or or doing something like that. It doesn't seem like they're taking that strong of a stance. Um, and we'll have to see when they come into power. Will what what will their the sort of 
the big list of concerns that were mentioned in the motion, what will come of them? Will they rule differently? Um, because a lot of people on the ground here say, actually, there hasn't been enough time to see how governments rule and what is the outcome of the foreign policy? What, have, what is the outcome for any of their policies? Um, the, the, because of these, votes, these constant votes of no confidence, um, the governments change so quickly. So they're, they're unable to sorry, really cement their own policy. So certainly the opposition haven't come out with any clear to find, um, you know, responses, what they will do with the security deal, but they have raised concerns. So we might see some amendments to it. Um, who knows? Or negotiations might continue with Australia. Or we haven't heard from Australia, neither Australia nor the opposition about, yes, the status of that security deal. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, this is a country uh, that's gone through like two cyclones already this year, and I think <laughs> the the people are needing uh, governments to govern. Uh, is mm. anything moving forward? Was there any other information that uh, Ishmael Kalsakal gave? Yes, well, he was very, very um, frustrated on this issue. I mean, he sort of shared a frustration um, with a lot of people here in, in Vanuatu, Aggie, that are that are frustrated, as I said, that want government to rule. And, um, you know, there were there were some people I um, saw on social media with signs out the front um, saying that government should be allowed to serve a full term. Um, a lot of people who you just speak to, even though they might not carry signs, do say that they, they want governments to be strong and secure. At the same time, for that to happen, they need to have the majority support of their membership. Um, so there is a lot of frustration, and, and the Prime Minister, Kyle Sakal, sort of underlined that. He said that his government were, were putting forward a bill today, that they will be putting forward a bill today um, to actually address that, to try and promote um, some more stability in, in Parliament through this law. But, uh, of course, with the government being in its minority in the way that it, that it is, it's sort of, um, there's a big question mark about whether those, that motion, that bill might be able to even be put forward in the Parliament. Um, so, yes, certainly um, Prime Minister Karl did say that there needs to be change to um, ensure that governments can serve at least at least a year, um, is, is, is what a lot of people are saying. Uh, but uh, he was also sort of resigned. He sort of said the, the courts will decide. It's not in my hands. It's in God's hands. So whatever will happen will happen. So he was also resigned to the fact that he did have the minority support in Parliament and that his days might be, might be numbered. Well, that's it. Do you think he could face another vote against him in the future? It might be. I mean, it depends on this. Uh, as I mentioned, there is this one um, member of parliament that uh, that we expect to side with the opposition who's away overseas on, on sick leave. Um, so if he comes back, perhaps that motion could be brought forward again. We also have a by-election coming up in one of um, the islands, Malakula. Uh, that's expected next month. That by-election would um, elect a new member of parliament. And um, we, you know, who knows who might be uh, in line for that. But if it does go to the opposition, that could also give them one extra vote to bring uh, forward the motion again. So it isn't all said and done. And we also do have that expected court case as well to decide what happens to a government now that it has, you know, a minority of support. So uh, it is, it, no one's calling it yet. We don't know if the government will continue to rule or for how long. Mm. Priyanka, it is great to catch up with you. Really appreciate the insight uh, that you were there and hopefully we will catch up again. Thanks, Aggie. Thank you so much. <laughs> no worries. That, of course, is reporter Priyanka Srinivasan joining us this morning. This is Pacific Beat.
Samoa's former Prime Minister, Tuilaepa Sailele Marielinga Oi, says jail sentences handed down to two men who tried to assassinate him in 2019 will discourage future violence against politicians. It's the latest in a long and controversial case that involved a pig's head being thrown at Tuilaepa in an effort to extradite an accused conspirator from Australia. ABC's Mackenzie Smith with this report. Just last week, the social media blogger Malele Paolo, otherwise known as King Faipopo, was waxing lyrical about his new political party, which he claimed would take the 2026 election by storm. Yes, I'm introducing my new political party, even though I'm not going to reveal uh, all the information about it, but uh, I was just giving a hint. That but two days later, Samoa's Supreme Court sentenced him to four years jail for conspiracy to murder the former Prime Minister. Tuilaepa Sailele Malialengaoi. Paolo's co defendant, Lemai Faioso Sione, was given four and a half years. For the pair, it marks the end of a four year legal battle, beginning with their arrest after an attempt on Tuilaepa's life by a lone gunman outside Siusenga Catholic Church on August 4, 2019. That attempt failed because the statesman failed to show that morning but it led police to charge four men with conspiracy to murder. The third man, Tawale Leloa, is serving a five-year sentence handed down in December 2020. And another Australian Samoan citizen, Talalele Paunga, is in Australia awaiting extradition to Samoa for trial. Two days before his sentencing, Malele Paolo maintained his innocence in a video that's been viewed 124,000 times. Do you really believe that I did what they claim that I did, planning to assassinate the previous Prime Minister of Samoa, Mr. Tuilaepa Sailele. Do you really believe that? As for Tuilaepa, he considers himself lucky to be alive. It was lucky that I was not in church at the time. I was uh, attending a service uh, in my village. And so it uh, became clear when uh, they were arrested by police and uh, interviewed uh, that it became clear they were following me for quite some time. And uh, I never knew. He says it wasn't the only attempt on his life during his 23 years as prime minister. There were numerous cases that were later reported to me where quite a few plots have been concocted by some youngsters. But... uh, did not uh, proceed. Tuilaepa says the jailing of Paolo and Sione is an important step in preventing Samoa's elected leaders from becoming targets. While this attempt was foiled, in 1999, Luanga Lao Levaula Kamu, a cabinet minister under Tuilaepa's first government, was shot dead by the son of another cabinet minister, who was then sentenced to life in prison. It's good that the police have persisted in uh, carrying out this case to its conclusion, because uh, if the police ignored uh, these kinds of plots, Uh, then it uh, may encourage others. Still, while the fates of the first three jailed men are clear, the fourth accused, Talalele Paunga, is reportedly still in custody in Brisbane. He drew headlines in January 2019 when he hurled a pig's head and eggs in the direction of Tuilaepa at a Samoan event in a Brisbane church. Six months later, he's alleged to have been involved in the assassination plot.
An Australian lawyer who has represented Paunga, Greg Finlayson, says the charges against him have effectively left him in legal limbo, reflecting Australia's harsh extradition arrangements. It's about keeping people locked up. It's not about quickly getting them to trial, because if that was the case, Parga would have been charged in Australia three years ago and, and, and brought before the Queensland Supreme Court on whatever charges they thought they could a June report from Samoa Global News quoted Samoa's Attorney-General, Sua Helene Woolwork, as saying the extradition order had been approved. But a spokesperson for Australia's Attorney-General said they wouldn't comment on operational matters. And that's Mackenzie Smith reporting there. Pacific Beat. Welcome back. As we head to Fiji Football Association's CEO, Mohamed Yusuf says it was a surprise to discover their former vice president was embroiled in a drug syndicate. Ayaz Umaji Musa was arrested and sentenced to four years in New Zealand after authorities uncovered his involvement in importing and exporting illicit drugs across the region. Mr Yusuf told ABC's Thierry Lipani that they were shocked by the recent developments. Now in his, uh, in his resignation letter, he stated it was for personal reason. What's your message to football supporters in Fiji now that there is a vacancy in the vice presidency? So according to the provisions outlined in our Fiji FA statutes, the vacant position of vice president will be filled in due course. The board of control is committed to ensuring a smooth uh, transition. And we will adhere to the established procedures to identify a suitable replacement who will contribute to the growth of the game in Fiji. So it will go to the council uh, for, for approval. And the council is made up of all the 20, 20 member clubs who will uh, approve or disapprove uh, uh, and appoint a new via acting VP until... The election proper will be held in the next uh, ordinary congress. What were the reactions like at uh, Fiji FA? Was it surprised that this was going on in Mr. Umarji's private life? Um, yes, we were very, very surprised. At, uh, and of course, uh, when he was elected, his nomination had gone through the governance committee, which does all the checks and... Uh, of uh, the the person's character, the the standing in the community, and everything, and uh, and he he was duly approved by the our governance community committee to stand in the elections where he got elected. And finally, given that there was a recent Pacific tour by the FIFA president who visited Fiji as well, does this impact the momentum from that visit at all? President Vigis visit and this incident is is, is nothing to do with each other. And uh, FIFA President visit is a, a goodwill visit to see uh, what FIFA has done for Fiji FA in terms of infrastructure development. And he was here to do the opening of the King Pele uh, Fitness Center, state of art uh, project that will be now available for Fijian footballers. Uh, ex-footballers, and of course the members of the uh, general public as well. Um, uh, so um, uh, uh, now we know that uh, he has resigned and we will, the board will meet on the 10th of September, uh, normal board meeting, executive meeting, and then we will 
call a council meeting with proper notice and the council will then make appropriate uh, appointments. That was Fiji Football's CEO, Muhammad Yusuf, speaking to ABC's Terry Lipani. You've been tuning into Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Yesterday on Pacific Beat, we carried a story about concerns raised by Guam residents over a new missile system to be put in place by the U.S. military on the island. A U.S. Defense Department official has responded to our queries, saying the Guam defense system will protect more than the 170,000 U.S. citizens on the island from ballistic missiles from any nation. The official says missile sites will be on department land, although other sites may be considered. And as part of the process in developing the project, an environmental impact statement has been carried. And public meetings were held on August 2nd and 3rd, which was attended by more than 200 Guam residents. That's right, it is that time to take a look at what's making headlines across the Pacific with our news wrap. We're joined now by Pacific Beat producer Evan Wasuka. How are you doing? Good morning, Aggie. <laughs> I am good. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, let's start in Fiji uh, to this case of former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and, of course, suspended police commissioner Sitiveni Kiriho. What's the latest there? Well, Aggie, this case has been going on for some time and it's uh, something Pacific Beat has been keeping a close eye on thanks to our reporter in Fiji, Lida Mavona. So, Aggie, earlier this week, we thought things were going, going towards the closing end of the case uh, which has been taking place in Suva's Magistrate's Court. Uh, just to recap, now these two men are charged with interfering with a police investigation. Um, so this case has been, uh, as I said, going on for some time and the prosecution has had their witnesses before uh, taking the stand, and it was now the turn of the defense. Uh, what had happened was the defense lawyers had filed a, uh, a no-case-to-answer submission, and the magistrate's court was um, uh, looking at this, and we were expecting a ruling earlier this week. Now, according to the Fiji Times, um, Magistrate Seni Puamau is expected to deliver a ruling on that uh, submission on September the 5th. So just a, a bit more while to uh, go until we get an answer to that. Now, the key focus of this submission is that uh, the defense want uh, discussions that took place at a National Security Council meeting. They want that not to be allowed to be entered into the trial, and they want it to be treated as a hearsay. Now, if that um, if the magistrate agrees with that uh, ruling, uh, then the case will be thrown out, and um, that will be the end of the matter. Uh, if not, the trial will continue, and then there'll be a, a ruling at the end of this on 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 those charges against uh, former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and the suspended police commissioner City Venegilio. Wow, uh, staying in Fiji, there even the government there is pulling together a plan to deal with a big spike in HIV and AIDS numbers. That's right, Aggie. Uh, this story is from Radio New Zealand International, and the Fiji government has seen a big spike in the number of HIV AIDS cases. Uh, 245 cases were reported last year in 2022. Uh, that's compared to 151 in 2021. Now, uh, UN AIDS sh- uh, data show that Fiji has the highest death rate in the region uh, when it comes to HIV AIDS. 
and it has the second fastest rate of HIV AIDS in the Asia Pacific re- region. So, um, what's the government doing about this? Well, according to the health secretary, Dr. James Fong, they are going to start a nationwide screening program. Uh, now, the aim of this is that it covers the whole country and it removes that stigma from um, when it comes to uh, testing. Um, and the aim is to get more people treated. Uh, so James Fong from the health uh, ministry uh, said what they'll do is those who get a positive test will then be linked up with the treatment program, while those who get a negative result will end up staying in the system and will be in line for future testing. Um, and uh, Dr. James Wong said it's not just a government effort. It has to be uh, in order to reduce those HIV AIDS uh, statistics. It needs to be an approach by the full sector, by everyone uh, across Fiji. Mm. Well, good to see that there is some work towards that. Finally, PNG's top cop has put out a directive uh, to his officer to use force to protect lives from domestic terrorists and criminals. Yes, Aggie. So over the past year or so, we've seen the growing cases of violence in parts of PNG, particularly up in the highlands. Uh, now the Post-Korea is reporting that PNG's police commissioner, David Manning, he's approved the use of lethal force for police officers and the military to uh, protect lives and in the execution of their duties. Um, so that has just been issued uh, and Mr. Manning says as part of that uh, instructions is given out that police officers must give clear warnings to criminals before resorting to the use of um, weapons. Um, and um, he said in the circular which, which went out to all of police that this was an issue he didn't take lightly and uh, this directive was only being issued because it had reached a stage where it was necessary. Um, and he said they've seen armed criminals terrorizing, terrorizing people um, in the Enga province. And he says this will no longer be tolerated. Uh, and Mr. Manning says um, police will use lethal force when encountering criminals that have, are armed with explosive devices, bush knife or catapults. And this would be their response in those situations. Wow, we will definitely keep our eyes and ears on that story. But Evan, I do appreciate you coming and bringing our news rep for this morning. Do the same thing tomorrow with Kyle. Yep, back <laughs> tomorrow with that Pacific Beat Sporting Edition. Awesome. Uh, you're tuning in to Pacific Beat. The streets of Samoa will soon have more female drivers due to a pilot project helping women get their driver's licenses for free. The project aims to make the country's roads safer, help women get jobs and help families better respond to emergencies. And as Dubravka Volida reports, it also means many women who've driven for years will now finally get their license. Freedom. That's how Maria Catherine's Lucy Vassa describes her experience of driving a car in the streets of Samoa. It was a dream of the 18-year-old to drive for years. It was so my dream. When I was 16, (laughs) I was dreaming of having a driver's license so that I can drive it by myself. That dream will soon become a reality. She's taking driving lessons and is going to sit a driver's test as part of a pilot program run by the government. I knew how to drive before I attended this program, 
but now I'm getting a driver's license for free. It will make all the differences that I will be driving on the road legally without getting scared of the police. She's part of a group of about 200 women taking part in the pilot. Some of the women are 18, like Maria Catherine. Others are in their 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s and a couple in their 60s. There is a majority of women who are driving unlicensed and have not had any prior driver training. The Land Transport Authority's Fatete Lene is heading the project. This initiative is targeting women, is to open the opportunity uh, for them to come in. LTA has agreed to provide these driver's licenses free of cost. Uh, this is the first time uh, that it's been implemented here in Samoa. According to the World Bank, which is helping to fund the project, in 2018, more than 70% of licensed drivers were men, while less than 30% were women. Many women didn't get their licenses because of the cost, but there are also cultural reasons. It's both the money and they're not confident in participating when there are other male counterparts in the classes. Next to making the roads safer, she hopes it will open up job opportunities for some of the women. We've had discussions with uh, seasonal worker uh, companies who are recruiting people from Samoa. A lot of the women who want to apply need driver's license in order to meet the criteria to get seasonal work. It's opening job opportunities for women to get jobs overseas and locally as well. It's hoped it will also help women with their family obligations, such as doing chores or respond to emergencies, including natural disasters. She envisages that the project will become a more permanent initiative. Driver Maria Catherine says it will make all the difference in the world to her and her family. For me, I will be able to be driving legally and getting a a driver's license for free. For my family, I will be able to drive them anywhere. I just finished um, university. Um, having a driver's license will be will help me to to get a job. And that was Dubrovka Volata reporting there. The Matilda's dreams of World Cup glory are over, but it seems they've won the nation's heart. The English Lionesses were too strong in last night's semi-final, defeating Australia 3-1. to The reigning European champions will now face Spain in the final, while the Matildas will play Sweden for third place. Oliver Gordon reports. In six stadiums, at eight public viewing areas, and in countless pubs, clubs and living rooms, Matilda's fans gathered. Moments before kickoff at Melbourne's Federation Square, 16-year-old Bethany was tense. Um, well, I've got butterflies in my stomach. I'm really nervous because I really want us to get to the final. But um, yeah, I'm really, really excited to see what they're going to do today. Sam Kerr led the Matildas out in front of a packed stadium, Australia, and was soon the target of some rough English defending. And Sam Kerr coming away with it. That's a crude challenge then by Greenwood. And she gets a yellow card, and deservedly so. The English team stamped their authority on the game early, 
and scored in the 36th minute through Alatoon. Ten to go till half-time. England have a vital lead in the World Cup semi-final. It's Australia nil. England won. The Lionesses led the Matildas at half-time. Barter Sam Kurt Thunderbolt drew the Matildas level at the 63-minute mark. What a strike! What a goal from Sam Kurt! She's been quiet all game, but now she's raised the noise through the roof here! What a goal! The world-class goal buoyed fans' spirits and saw momentum shift Australia's way. But just eight minutes later... Lioness Lauren Hemp capitalised on an Ellie Carpenter mistake to retake the lead. Some pressure here. She's going on the ball and knocking the ball into the back of the net. It's Lauren Hemp. They took too long, didn't get the ball clear, and a disaster at the back for Australia. Just when they'd got at the 86-minute mark, England again found a way through the Matildas' defence to score through Alessia Russo. Russo, the area. Russo shoots and scores, and that might be enough for England to make it through to the World Cup final. Defeating England was never going to be an easy task. The Lionesses are the reigning European champions and going to the final against Spain this weekend undefeated in this tournament. Former Matilda Jill Foster hopes the Matildas can take comfort in the fact they've gone further in a World Cup tournament than any Australian team. Fourth is the worst we can come at the World Cup. That's pretty amazing. As the tournament draws closer to its end, she wants guarantees the influx of money coming into women's football stays there. I mean, a lot of kids are going to start playing, so there'll be more money coming in from memberships and uh, registrations, and, and, and that can only mean good things. But as long as we work hard from the top down as well, like use, use the money that we get from FIFA wisely, um, that, that's what's important, I think. Where would you like the, the money from FIFA to be invested specifically? Just making sure the structure of the game is right and that we're getting girls are getting good coaching at lower level is really important and just making sure that money is is going back into women's football which hasn't happened in other countries happened hasn't happened in our country previously as well so that'll be the focus is that all that women's money stays in women's football Australia's quest for the World Cup is over, but their tournament isn't. This Saturday, the Matildas take on Sweden in the third-place playoff in Brisbane. Former Matilda Jill Foster will be there, cheering on. Super proud of them. I hope, yeah, that they pick themselves up from this loss and, and can go forward in a couple of days and, and focus on the next game and come away with the win. Still behind you. Former Matilda Jill Foster there, ending Oliver Gordon's report. Now, the company behind the world's first mango-picking robot has received a big boost, securing $1 million in venture capital during a special event in Darwin. The technology has been developed by CQ University in partnership with the company Agricultural Robotics and will hopefully reduce the worker shorter issues faced each year by the mango industry. Dr Amanda White from Agricultural Robotics says after years of trials, the tech is now nearing commercialisation and the funding this week definitely helps. What it comes down to is mangoes uh, annually harvest represents about $128 million to the Northern Territory economy, uh, with the remaining $92 million gross value being distributed across northern Queensland, northern Western Australia. But there's a big problem here. We have a short harvest turnaround period, can be as brief as eight weeks, and for just a 70,000 tonne of fruit in the NT, 
each mango is hand-picked in excessive temperatures and those mangoes are perishable. So if you delay picking by more than three days, loss of crop is a real risk. So the question is, how do we address the reality of this situation paired with acidic mango sap as well as uh, scarcity of labour? We need something that's more reliable and safer than the manual pick. So the, man the mango auto harvester really was designed to solve this problem. AI identifies the location of each mango and for a single arm in an array of four arms, the return, the return cycle it takes about five seconds and those arms are just running continuously. The picking cycle does not stop and our fruit pick success rate is currently over 70% but it's improving and we fit the auto harvester on a self-propelled semi-autonomous vehicle. Um, we've partnered in with Nisiforo Farms. They account for about 20% of the Aussie mango crop they're our commercial partner and look, they back this technology. There's a real appetite to get some change going to better support growers and we're really here for that. You're actually on one of the Nisiforo plantations this afternoon, yes? Correct, yeah. yeah. It's a, I'm, I'm here in the packing shed, in fact. For Country Hour fans who tune in a lot, they'll be familiar with this robot, this story. Yes. Uh, it's, it's been trialled for several years now, but can you maybe just tell us about yes. the last 12 months and some of the innovations that have been made? Mm, absolutely. So in the last 12 months, uh, Central Queensland University, who has been developing the technology for the duration of the project under the guidance of Professor Kerry Walsh, they formed a commercial vehicle partnership because to get this from prototype stage into a working product that you can purchase, uh, they needed a third party and that third party was Queensland-based freelance robotics under William Pagnon. So this meant that there was a diversification of the team and now we're really punching forward to get to the product level readiness for the technology. Um, so there's been some updates, not just for the auto harvester, but also for Orion, the vision rig. Um, this has uh, now really entered the finalisation stages so that it's ready to purchase in addition to fruit maps. The suite of technology uh, is also on a fast track to having developments as we pivot into different sorts of agronomy and applications. And I'm really excited to see what the next 12 months will bring forward as well. So is the focus still purely on mangoes? Or you're looking at yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We love mangoes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, mango mangoes are our core um, group. These right. growers are uh, have stood by this technology. We have enormous respect for the work that they're doing out there. So what it means to us is that mangoes are always the priority. Yeah. Even though. In the long term, of course, we will diversify into other fruit types. It, it's not the same pick style. There will be technology developments. It's not as if we're moving past and through. Um, in fact, mango is the sole focus still, and it will be probably, I, I imagine, for the next uh, at least 18 months to two years. And now a million dollars in venture yeah. capital. <laughs> now, um, Matt, what's excited. that going to mean yes. for everything? Uh, look, um, what it's going to mean is that this technology will be able to go to growers sooner. So the, the reality is that it's one thing to have technology. It's another thing to have a product. And moving from a prototype, which is a working model, it's a minimum viable product, is very different to what you expect when you pick something up and you want it to work on your farm. So the 
question for where this money allocation is going, the answer is manufacturing. And there's a lot of backers out there. We're looking to upskill farm and we're looking to upskill factory. So that million dollars is an investment, I feel, in uh, not just mango in particular, but all of those uh, ripples that happen when you start to move forward strong in one industry, you start to find that, you know, you support supply chain, you support logistics, and the outcomes are going to be really a strong economic growth. That's Dr Amanda White, founding director of Agricultural Robotics, speaking to Matt Brain. When it comes to being connected, let's get Pacific. From across the seas and right around our region, ABC Australia is connecting you like never before with a new voice in news, politics, sports and events. From Fiji to Kiribati, PNG to French Polynesia, our trusted team of reporters bring you everything Pacific. Join me, Johnson Riala, because what matters to the Pacific matters to us. Watch The Pacific, Thursday nights, 7pm PNG time on ABC Australia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Taking a look at our key stories from this morning's show, Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakal has survived a motion of no confidence, but reporter Priyanka Srinivasan says his future in the top job is even more uncertain now. Yes, well, some would say the odds still look pretty stacked against him, uh, Aggie, because he barely scraped through and and pretty much made it through with uh, a technicality on his side. And Samoa's former Prime Minister has welcomed the sentencing of two accused of plotting to assassinate him, while a third man is in Australia awaiting extradition. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. I'll be back next week on Monday, that's 6am. Tomorrow you'll have your sports edition with Carl Evans.